We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Lizzie, I've got a question for you. Mm. Ibiza or Norfolk? Um, I think Ibiza was so last decade. <laughs> I, you know I believe in staying in the UK in the Great British Summer, Ewan. I know we've got it in common, in fact. Uh, why would you leave Britain when the weather's nice? Well, the weather's been lovely. Uh, I think there's a flaw in your argument here. And the <laughs> weather has been terrible, which we're going to talk about in a minute regarding the economic data. I wanted to ask you about this, though, because there was a nice piece on the Bling Road Terminal by our colleague, our opinion writer colleague, Adrian Baldridge. He says that Brits are increasingly escaping to Brighton, Margate, Cornwall, and not going to Greece and Spain. And he says this is going to happen more and more as climate change makes those places too hot. But this is something that we agree on, isn't it? In the summer, they're too hot anyway. And you may as well stay here and get a bit of British sun. Yeah, don't miss the chance you only will get in the summer. Go away in October. Yeah, but we didn't get it in July. Of course, we, as you say, had the latest UK retail sales data this morning for the month of July. And they were pretty ugly on both the month and the year because of the bad weather. Some were expecting a bit of a Barbie bounce. It didn't come. And actually, what you saw was really bad retail sales weighed down by the weather but also by the bank of england's rate hikes finally for the first time in four months sales have fallen short of economists expectations so the question now becomes is this a stagflation situation in the uk not the sort of backdrop that the prime minister wants when three of his top five priorities are economic Yeah, the data has been pretty strong, hasn't it, broadly, until this point. So whether it's a turning point or whether it's just the bad weather getting in the way of retail sales, who wants to go shopping when it's raining, I think we'll have to uh, wait and see. I also want to mention something about the Labour Party after we spoke to Jeremy Corbyn yesterday. Of course, Jeremy Corbyn said that the Labour leadership is being too timid on policy. Well, this is somewhere they're not being timid, but perhaps not something that Jeremy Corbyn will be pleased about. The FT reporting that Labour has watered down plans to strengthen workers' rights. Apparently, a pledge to boost the boost the protection of gig economy workers has been diluted by the party's National Policy Forum, and a Labour government will continue to allow companies to dismiss staff during the trial period. So this is not timid, but it will not be pleasing the left of the party either. Mm, Well, I want to get back to results and from economic to educational, because more than 700,000 students received their A-level results yesterday. Marks falling across the board after pandemic measures were unwound. This is the first year since the pandemic without predictive grading, which saw students gain a much higher share of A's than ever before. Well, students graduating this year face a tough set of circumstances with the jobs market beginning to weaken and university getting more and more expensive. But does having a degree actually still mean what it used to do? Well, earlier we caught up with the vice president of the job website LinkedIn, Sue Duke, and we asked her whether companies are starting to move away from asking to see your university degree. That's no question a trend that is well underway. We have for a very long time had a labour market that has been unequal and has failed to match the right talent to the right opportunities. Skills first, 
is the way to address a labour market that is not only very tight, where we have very acute skills and labour shortages in many countries and many sectors around the world, but it's also the way to make that labour market more equitable and more diverse. Skills-first hiring fundamentally moves away from asking those questions that we've always asked of candidates. What school did you go to? What degree do you have? What was your last job? What was the job, three jobs before that? And moves to the single most important important question, do you have the skills to do this job? Today on LinkedIn, 45% of recruiters are searching by skills. What we've seen here in the UK alone is a 90% increase in the number of job postings on our platform who are not, that are no longer asking for a degree. It is coming through loud and clear, not only in the UK, but across the world. And we fully expect that trend to continue. Joining us to discuss further and some of the wider education issues is Robert Halfon, Minister for Skills and Further and Higher Education. He's also MP for Harlow in Essex. Minister, the Prime Minister retweeted Jeremy Clarkson's infamous tweet about his results not holding him back. The Education Secretary Gillian Keegan said as well that no one will ask about your grades in 10 years time, so no need to worry about them. You're meant to be the party of aspiration. Do grades matter? Well, first of all, I think it's important to say well done to all the students who got their results yesterday and a special thank you to the teachers and support staff and, of course, the families um, who made it all possible. Um, But what I think the Prime Minister and um, Gillian Keegan uh, was saying, that absolutely it's important to get uh, results, but also um, as you go on through life, um, companies, when you seek employment, companies look at work, the work that you've done, the work experience that you've had, the different organisations that you've worked in, the skills that you develop, as well as exam results. So I think what they were trying to say was that those students who may not have got the results they wanted yesterday, it's not the be all and end all, actually you can have very successful careers. And in fact, there are many people who have done so. Universities have been increasingly strapped for cash um, in in recent years uh, the universities that these students are hoping to get into is the only answer more and more overseas students because that's that's what's really been happening in recent years isn't it well if you look at the figures the number of international students over the last uh, few years has remained relatively stable in fact 85 percent of uh, courses available are for um, English students. So uh, 85% of of courses. So that's quite important to to note. And just 15% go to um, international uh, students. So international students make up just 15%. Um, They make up 70% of postgraduate students. uh, um, uh, uh, Sorry, 70% of international uh, or postgraduate students are international students, absolutely. Um, but in terms of undergraduates, as I say, 85% are English for English students. Of course, not everybody uh, goes the same path after school. So the Sutton Trust has this new data out showing that only 5% of those starting a degree apprenticeship in 2020 were from lower income areas. That's even lower than the share in universities. I wonder, Minister, the pointy elbowed middle class is gaming the system again. Well, there's two things I'd say about this. Uh, for too long, there's been a uh, uh, those people who it was always looked upon that um, 
uh, uh, disadvantaged people just do apprenticeships and the well-off people do academic degrees. That has changed and that's a, a good thing because we want everybody to do apprenticeships, um, middle class um, groups uh, just as much as disadvantaged. And what we're doing though is we're spending an extra £40 million pounds um, on degree apprenticeships to try and work with providers and, and that will help ensure that more disadvantaged students can do these degree apprenticeships because they're an incredible offering because you earn while you learn, you get a good skill, you get a job at the end because we know that 90% of apprentices who complete get good skilled uh, jobs. We've had over 180,000 degree apprentices since uh, 2014 since we introduced them so and of course you don't have to take out a student loan so they're incredible offering especially for those from disadvantaged groups and we're doing a lot of work with careers as well uh, with careers organizations going into schools like the careers enterprise company and the apprenticeship and skills knowledge network to, and to work with disadvantaged students to make sure they take up those uh, wonderful degree apprenticeships offerings as well because you can do a degree apprenticeship in almost uh, everything from engineering right down to policing and I've been all over the country uh, to see great degree apprentices on offer not just in the traditional vocational universities but Russell Group universities like Exeter as well. But what these data show are that working class kids are being crowded out only five percent starting a degree apprenticeship 2020 to 2021 were from lower income areas. Well, don't forget degree apprentices are a relatively new offering and as I say we're doing a lot of work to try and ensure that more disadvantaged students take up degree apprentices and as they become more widespread um, we'll know that more uh, students will be doing them and if you take university traditional university for example the number of students and free school meals who got university places has gone up by 60% with the latest figures that came out yesterday. So there's some good things happening across the higher education sector, but you're absolutely right. We're trying to do everything we can to ensure that more disadvantaged groups uh, get access to those wonderful degree apprenticeships on, on, on offer. A number of your colleagues have been increasingly keen to weigh in on the value of degree courses, talk of Mickey Mouse degrees. Are you comfortable with that kind of language? Do, do Conservatives still believe in, in student choice? Absolutely. And it was wonderful that uh, with the results coming out yesterday, over 90% of students got their first or second choice of university and of course thousands of other offerings apprenticeships and degree apprenticeships and also new higher technical qualifications that are on offer what the government is saying is that uh, the primary purpose of course going to university is an incredible thing i was only the second person in my family to go to university and what um, universities provide is education experience absolutely but at the end of the day the primary purpose must be about getting a good skill a good job and all that the government have said is that uh, what they will do is limit uh, recruitment on courses which have poor uh, outcomes for students. So in other words, students going on those courses, not getting good skilled jobs at the end of those courses. And that doesn't that's not an attack on a particular subject, as, as some in the media have suggested. It, it could be any course, um, but it's particular co individual courses and individual universities that have have poor outcomes. And what we want to try and do is ensure that if you are going to invest in a student loan, uh, you know, that's well over £9,000, £9,200, um, you, you should get the, a reward for that investment. And that means a good skilled job at the end. So in your mind, is there a hierarchy of courses? Uh, if my research serves me, you've done politics at Exeter. 
I did. I did politics at Exeter and uh, very privileged and very lucky to have been able to to do that. It's not about a hierarchy of courses at all. As I mentioned, it's particularly about individual courses at individual universities that are not achieving the good outcomes for students. So it could be a STEM subject, it might be an art subject, but it's not an attack on particular subjects. That's the crucial point. We mentioned um, overseas students uh, helping with the finances of universities. A number of your colleagues have talked about uh, scrapping post-study work fees as something which makes universities quite attractive in this country to overseas students. Are you committed to keeping those in place? Um, you know, the visa matters always a matter for the Home Office. Our policy on international students was settled over the uh, past past few months with us, you know, with an announcement in in Parliament. We're not planning to change uh, anything at this time. You're a famously uh, outspoken backbencher. How are you finding ministerial life? It's a great honour to do it. My passion has always been uh, about skills. My first ever speech in Parliament was on apprenticeships and encouraging more apprenticeship opportunities and particularly encouraging teachers to get children to do uh, learn and do apprenticeships when they leave school. And so I was previously a skills minister in 2016. And to be asked to do this job again is, is a huge a huge honour because it gives you the chance uh, to make policy and really make a difference. You know, I mentioned that we've in been able to increase the uh, money going to degree apprenticeships. Was previously eight million, it's now going to be forty million pounds over the next uh, two years. We've increased the care leavers bursary. We've removed the cap on uh, the number of apprentices that small businesses can employ we're trying to uh, reform universities so that students can get good outcomes so of course as a backbencher it's, you're able to campaign and i was chair of the education committee campaign for things uh, but as a minister you're able to have the privilege of making policy and transforming the lives of 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 young people learners students improving our skills improving our universities and increasing the number of people doing apprenticeships so it's a huge um honour for me to uh, be able to do this. Minister, putting grades aside, do you feel that this cohort that's just finished their A-levels has had the support they deserve between COVID and strikes? I think it's been very difficult um, because students have come out of the pandemic. I mean, who would have ever imagined uh, everything that's gone on during uh, COVID? And that's why I pay particular tribute to the students and the teachers and the support staff for all that they they have done. And yes, it's difficult with the uh, strikes as well. I've had meetings with the university bodies. Um, I've written to the university's employers body, which is called the UCEA. Um, to try and bring the uh, negotiations back, you know, to the table. Um, I spoke to a, a university UK yesterday. I was visiting UCAS all day, and they said at the moment, um, according to surveys they've done of a number of universities, just two percent will be affected by the marking boycott. By the way, one student being affected by the marking boycott is wrong, but most students affected are being either given provisional grades or grades based on prior 
prior attainment, but it's absolutely wrong. I understand strikes take place for one reason or another. I completely get that, but it's wrong. The marking boycott is wrong and should be stopped. And uh, I, I, I think that the UCU is absolutely in the wrong place on this, but I'm doing everything I can. I don't have powers of legal powers of intervention, but I'm doing everything I can to try and bring the uh, university bodies and the UCU back to negotiation um, because we need to get this sorted out once and for all. The former Conservative Chancellor George Osborne says that the current education policy of both parties is pretty uninspiring. Is he right? Uh, I'm I'm very proud of our education policy. I can't speak for the Labour Party's education policy, although it's very damaging. They're going to destroy the apprenticeship levy, which will mean much less, uh, will have much less apprentices. But um, in terms of our policy, we're transforming skills in our country. I mean, we are, uh, for example, where we've created, we're not just introduced the T levels, the brand new T levels, we've uh, introduced higher, higher technical qualifications. There are 100 at the moment. We've got 21 new institutes of technology rolling around the country. That's going to revolutionize ter tertiary education, the collaborations between further education, higher education and business. Uh, providing state-of-the-art degree apprentices and higher technical qualifications for students. We've had five million apprentices since 20, uh, since since 2010. Five million, over five million apprentices, for example. We are well beating in terms of reading. We've got 88% of schools good or outstanding compared to 68% in 2010. We're doing huge amounts on on skills. Uh, we've just introduced, I've been introducing something in Parliament called the Lifelong Learning Entitlement, and that is going to revolutionise uh, skills in higher education because it means every adult will have access to up to £37,000 of loan, but they won't have to uh, pay back more than they've borrowed, and they'll be able to do short courses at times of their choosing rather than having to do two or three-year or four, even four-year courses as they have at the moment. So, for example, you might have a student who might want to do sociology, they can do a short course in child psychology at one part of the year and then perhaps at one university or one college and then move to another college or university and do a course in adult psychology. Um, and that is going to revolutionise higher education as well, give everyone access to funds in order to be able to do train and retain throughout our life. We have now over 680 apprenticeship standards and in terms of the city, I know Bloomberg listeners will be interested we've got 84 high quality standards across legal finance and accounting sectors in terms of apprenticeships we've got apprenticeships at all levels going from level three right up to the higher levels four, four five six and and even level seven uh, so they're incredible we we've bought us we're building an apprenticeship and skills nation and we are transforming mm -hmm. skills in our country it's something i'm very proud of Finally, Robert, Rishi Sunak wants maths, more maths on the curriculum. It's often seen as quite a British thing to admit that you don't like maths. Did you like it at school? Well, here's a confession um, <laughs> to you. Uh, I was uh, absolutely terrible at mathematics. There's only one year in my life that I really understood it. I had the most incredible teacher when I was about 13 years old. I'm slightly, or I think it's either discalculated or dyspraxic when it comes to numbers but the big mistake that was made that when I was 16 I was able to do I did English history and politics and I never had to do mathematics again and that was wrong because if somebody uh, has struggles with maths I'm not saying I should have been made to do an A level or even a GCSE 
but I should have had basic maths refreshers all the way through. And what um, the importance, what the Prime Minister is talking about is that is talking about a numerical literacy so that people can um, have more understanding, those who have, who have difficulties with numbers, more understanding of bills and pension uh, things and all the stuff that comes through the post uh, every, every day, but also basic numeracy so that we can carry out our daily lives when we're shopping or whatever it may it may be this is not just a, about making people sit late at night learning extra having extra trigonometry uh, lessons so maths is incredibly maths to 18 is incredibly important um and it's important because it helps with our uh, not just with our numerical literacy but also with our careers as, as well Robert Halfen, uh, late convert to the cause of maths. Thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg EU Politics. That's Robert Halfen, Minister for Skills of Further and Higher Education and MP for Harlow in Essex. Ewan, you mentioned your fantastic interview with the former Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. He talked all about how Ukraine has put nuclear weapons back on the cultural map. Well, we wanted to talk to someone else, but someone on the other side of the debate. So you and Stephen caught up with the Rusi Deputy Director, Malcolm Chalmers. You started by asking him if the UK really does need to spend resources on nuclear weapons. I don't think it's primarily about status. It is primarily about national security. And the tragedy of, of the nuclear age is that when faced with hostile power, potentially hostile power, possessing nuclear weapons, if you don't have nuclear weapons of your own or you don't have a nuclear ally, then it's hard to deter that country if it, if it wishes to pose a, a very major threat to you. Now, nuclear weapons are not uh, the only element in national defence. They're not the most important element, but in extreme circumstances, they can play a real role. And uh, that's why uh, many of the non-nuclear countries in the world uh, are actually part of nuclear alliances. So most of the members of NATO do not have nuclear weapons, uh, but they do benefit from the security guarantees from the United States in particular, uh, which does have nuclear weapons uh, and says it's prepared to use those nuclear weapons uh, to deter uh, use of nuclear weapons by Russia. We see today in Ukraine a country, Russia, uh, which is making pretty explicit threats of of the use of nuclear weapons. And uh, imagine that scenario if no other, uh, no, no NATO country had nuclear weapons, I think that the chances of nuclear use would be greater if Russia were the only uh, power to have nuclear weapons. But to that point, if if the US is extending that nuclear backstop or guarantee to the, the rest of NATO, why does the UK, as a much smaller country, need to spend the money and keep its nuclear weapons? Well, I, I think there's there's always been an argument in the UK to rely on the American nuclear deterrent and, and not to have one of our own. I think there are two two counter arguments. Uh, the, the first, I think, is uh, that uh, is one of burden sharing that the United States, many in the United States with whom I talk, uh, would be quite uneasy being the only nuclear weapon state in NATO because the few others should share. That burden, which is a moral burden as well as everything else, given what the use of these weapons would you would would imply, 
And that, I think, is especially the case for the UK and France, because the UK and France acquired their nuclear weapons very early on in the Cold War. Uh, they're recognized as uh, nuclear weapon states under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. So it would be hard for the UK, I think, in those circumstances, to explain giving up these weapons at precisely at the time when nuclear threats are increasing. I think the other argument is that uh, the possession of a national nuclear deterrent by the UK has always been, uh, to some extent, a, a hedge against the possibility the United States uh, will not always be a reliable ally, or at least the Russians will perceive that the Americans are not a, a, a reliable ally. And uh, given that, it's a, it's a last, last resort uh, guarantee against that possibility, which is not the case now. But if you ever got to a situation which the use of nuclear weapons became a real possibility, then we really do not know how, how states would behave. So relying on the United States in that way, I think, would not be very popular in the UK or France for that reason. Is, is there a case for sharing resources with our ally and, and near neighbour France, the other nuclear power in Europe? <coughs> well, the United Kingdom uh, does quite a lot of joint uh, work in terms of its nuclear deterrent with the United States. Uh, we, we use the same missiles, same missile compartment, quite a lot of uh, joint work in terms of uh, our warheads as well. So there's already a lot of collaboration with the United States, which saves, saves a bit of money. Uh, uh, there's also a more limited but significant degree of, of cooperation with France, uh, not least in terms of some of the non-explosive uh, testing facilities which the UK uses in France. There's probably a bit more that both countries could do which would not still not undermine their ability to use those weapons independently. Uh, both the French president and British prime minister will not want a situation in which they lie <laughs> And the other for, for the firing chain. But there, there's probably quite a bit that could be done with France along the lines of, of what we already do with the United States. Uh, I don't think it would, in practice, save an awful, awful lot of money. This is a very expensive and increasingly expensive uh, business, and cooperation will only take you so far in reducing those costs. There's been a lot of discussion around the, the investment needed in maintaining this deterrent. What sort of sums of money are we talking about? And, and is it at a time when the public finances are strained? Is the argument there that it's necessarily a good investment? Well, the, the, the costs of Britain's nuclear deterrent as a proportion of its defence budget are growing. Uh, they're somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of the total defence budget, depending on how you count it. So yes, it's, it is a significant burden. I think the main trade-offs in practice are not so much between nuclear spending and non-defense spending, but between nuclear spending and other elements of the, of the defense budget. I think if you did get rid of Britain's nuclear deterrent, in order to make really significant savings, budgetary savings, you probably have to get rid of our nuclear attack submarines as well, which are, are, are uh, non-nuclear. They, they, they don't carry nuclear weapons, but they have a nuclear power plant. And in terms of the organization of, of those submarines within the Royal Navy, they, it goes hand in hand with the missile carrying submarines. But if you're prepared to get rid of, of those attack submarines, as well as our 
nuclear missile submarines, then over time you could you could save about you know getting maybe fifteen percent of the total budget, defense budget, which would be maybe something around eight, eight nine billion pounds a year. So in the end, the judgment has to be made about whether that level of spending on this is worth it. My view is it would be a very radical step indeed for the UK, having possessed these weapons since the 1950s, having been involved right back in the Manhattan Project during World War II, for us at this time to give up those weapons uh, with no apparent reason other than the need for budgetary savings. I think that would go down very badly with with all our allies uh, and uh, could be misperceived by other powers. And uh, let's remember we're in a world in which the number of nuclear weapon states continues to grow. North Korea is now uh, a formidable nuclear weapon state. Iran appears to be moving in that direction. I don't think that's necessarily uh, absolutely definite and it's there's i do not see a, 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 a credible argument the uk giving up its nuclear weapons would encourage others to do the same well that was the Rusi deputy director malcolm chalmers giving us a rather different view to the one we heard from jeremy corbyn don't forget if you didn't hear that interview you can listen back on your podcast stream that's it from us for today if you like the program don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by james walcock and jack ryan and our audio engineer was marufal hussein i'm ewan potts i'm lizzie burden and we'll be back with more next week this is bloomberg Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.